Well, thank you, Fred. Greetings to you all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I suppose there's two things that I want to say by way of introduction that I didn't anticipate. The first, where's Dave Johnston? Dave, you and I didn't communicate beforehand at all, did we? I think you looked at my notes, though. And you you quoted many of the texts that I will be quoting today. And to me, that's an indication that God the Holy Spirit is here to say something to us. Because when, when we, I haven't talked to you since May, I don't think. And that was when I was there with you. And we haven't talked about this at all. And yet, I was so thrilled that, by what you said this morning, how encouraging and helpful that was, and how it was a foundation upon which I can stand uh, to speak today. So thank you, brother, for your work. And thanks to God for putting that together without our uh, working on it together. Um, the second thing that I wanted to say is um, it, was, it was interesting to hear Ron make the 12-step um, reference there. I'm Ron Baines, and I'm a dispensationalist. And I thought, well, I could carry that forward. And I can say, I'm Jim Renahan, and I'm a recovering dispensationalist and a recovering semi-Pelagian. And that sets up what I want to say today as well. Please turn in your Bibles to an Old Testament text and a New Testament text. Here's where I pick up from Dave this morning. He mentioned Moses, Exodus 33. Exodus chapter 33. I'll read for you verses 12 through 19. God's word, Exodus 33, verses 12 through 19. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, If I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then he that is Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Please show me all your glory. Then he said, the Lord, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And please turn in the New Testament to 2 Peter chapter 1. The second epistle of Peter and the first chapter Reading verses 2 through 5. 2 Peter 1, verses 2 through 5. Grace and peace be multiplied to you 
in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. May God's blessing be on the reading of his holy word. I'd like to take you back in time, exactly 500 years. I want you to imagine that today is April the 5th, 1511. It was a Saturday in Lent. Easter was two weeks away. It would be April 20th that year. Do you know what the lives of professing Christians were like then, on this day, exactly 500 years ago. Julius II was the Pope. He had been elected the Bishop of Rome in 1503. Among those who would be the most important leaders in the decades ahead, Martin Luther was the oldest. He was 27 having just returned from his long journey to Rome. He was still a student teacher at Wittenberg University, for he would not receive his doctoral degree and be granted full teaching credentials for another year. Ulrich Zwingli was also 27 years old, three months younger than Luther. William Farrell was 21. Martin Bootser was 19. Philip Melanchthon was only 14. Peter Martyr Vermeule was 11 years old, John Knox was about five, and John Calvin had not yet reached his second birthday. It wouldn't come until July 10th. All of these men, the great leaders of the Reformation, 500 years ago today, were still very much Roman Catholics. Henry VIII had ascended the English throne less than two years before, April the 21st, 1509. And he was a faithful Romanist, happily married to Spain's Catherine of Aragon. A decade would pass before he would write his famous treatise on the seven sacraments in opposition to Luther. The Pope was so pleased with this book that would come ten years later that he gave to Henry the title Defender of the Faith. 500 years ago today in Germany, the man who would be Luther's protector, Frederick the Wise, had ruled his portion of Saxony for about 25 years. He was the founder of the University of Wittenberg, and he too was a devoted churchman. In 1493, he had made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And on that pilgrimage, he began to amass relics, bringing together, assembling one of the largest collections in Europe. In 1505, a catalog was made of Frederick's relics, and its inventory records over 5,000 items in his collection. And it said that by 1520, the accumulation had grown to over 10,000 relics in his collection. According to Roland Bainton in that great biography of Luther, Here I Stand, 
he says that Frederick's collection included, I quote, a genuine thorn from the crown of Christ, certified to have pierced the Savior's brow, a twig from Moses' burning bush, various pieces of the bodies of Jerome, Chrysostom, Bernard, and Augustine, four of Mary's hairs, as well as three pieces of her cloak, four from her girdle, and seven from her veil, which were sprinkled with Christ's blood. From Christ himself, Frederick the Wise owned a piece of Jesus' swaddling clothes, thirteen pieces of his crib, a wisp of straw, a piece of gold, and three pieces of myrrh from the wise men, a strand of his beard, a piece of bread from the Last Supper, one of the nails driven into his hand, and a piece of stone from which he ascended into heaven. Baton goes on and he says, Those who viewed these relics on the designated day and made the stipulated contributions might receive from the Pope indulgences for the reduction of purgatory, either for themselves or others, listen to this, to the extent of 1,902,202 years and 270 days. These were the treasures that were made available on All Saints' Day in Wittenberg. On this day, April the 5th, 1511, there was a great deal of religious activity throughout Europe. Not only was it a Saturday in Lent with all of the attached events, but it was also a Saints' Day in many different places. If you lived in parts of Spain, it was the day to celebrate the memory of St. Vincent Ferrer. In France, you might commemorate St. Gerald of Sauve-Major. In Italy, it was the day to remember St. Albert of Monte Carvino. In Ireland, St. Beacon, one of the Twelve Apostles of Ireland. If you lived in Wales, you might be honoring St. Durfel the Mighty, who was honored on this day. And in Northern England, it was the feast day of St. Ethelberga. All of these, April the 5th. If you were devout, perhaps you would make a pilgrimage to the saint's birthplace or grave, or attend a mass in his or her honor. One of the most important elements of the saint's day was the procession, in which the bishops and the priests and the monks and the nuns and the guilds and the church officials and the civic administrators and the people would walk together in careful array throughout the town. Usually the least important would go first, and they would be ranked according to their importance until at the end, walking under a canopy would be the procession of the bishop, who would be carrying with him something called the monstrance, which was a box, a special container, in which the consecrated host was held and displayed. If there were relics from the saint, the local saint, say St. Vincent of Ferrer, if you happen to be in Spain, these relics might be carried through the streets so that when the shin bone of St. So-and-so passed by, you could bow down. Five hundred years ago today, pilgrimages were an essential part of devotion. The wealthiest Christians, like Frederick the Wise, might actually be able to visit the Holy Land, or more conveniently, as for Luther, to go to Rome. For most, however, a pilgrimage involved a journey to a nearby holy site, to view relics, or to offer up prayers for the dead, 
frequently so that you might gain indulgences. You see, since Jerusalem, which was the most important destination for Christians, was so far removed from Europe, substitute pilgrimages had to be acceptable. One ancient alternative, known as walking the stations of the cross, was in vogue. This was, and if you go to Europe today, still is in many places, a pilgrimage that is taken in a very small space, oftentimes within the walls of a church building. During this pilgrimage, the penitent stops to meditate and to pray at depictions of the events of the last hours of our Lord Jesus. And these were found all over Europe. Similarly, in some of the great cathedrals, a pilgrimage could be simulated by walking the labyrinth. This was a serpentine pathway set out on the cathedral floor. But in every case, whether you walked the labyrinth or you went to Jerusalem, the pilgrimage was considered an act of devotion to Christ. If you lived in a place where the local saint wasn't being honored on April the 5th, and that would be most of Europe, you would probably still have much to do. Almost certainly, you would attend Mass. Though we think of it as a Sunday activity, in the slower cultures of the past, it was almost a daily occupation. Daily attendance at Mass was part of life, and the routine for many people included time for church. The building, the church building itself, would have witnessed a great deal of activity on this Saturday. Most of the churches, as you know, had a central altar where the main service was being held. But they also incorporated smaller altars along the sides and oftentimes in the back behind the main altar. Priests were employed at these altars to sing masses many times a day so that loved ones might be more quickly delivered from purgatory. If you had enough money, you were expected to use it for the benefit of your loved ones by hiring these priests to say Masses for you. And this was one way by which you showed your love to your family. Of course, if you didn't have enough money to hire a priest to say the Mass, there was still a provision for you as well. You could light a candle, and by yourself you could say a prayer before the altar. And it's said that the churches of Europe would have been brightly lit every day, by the many candles that were burning in memorial to departed loved ones. Now, while you probably wouldn't be able to read, you might have heard of the contemplations of the famous mystics of the previous centuries. Julian of Norwich, Hildegard of Bingen, Meister Eckhart. These are just three, all well-known and greatly influential. They had called for a deeper and more intimate spiritual encounter with Christ, and these calls were widely received. By 1511, 500 years ago today, much of Europe was interested in a growing movement rooted in medieval mysticism, which sought to increase the consecration of Christians. It was called the modern devotion. The most famous author from this movement was Thomas Akempis, who wrote the famous book, The Imitation of Christ, which, of course, is the direct forerunner of the What Would Jesus Do movement of our own day. Perhaps the most famous advocate of the modern devotion was Erasmus. The modern devotion was a movement 
was attempting to promote meditation and more Christ-like devotion. Maybe you've heard about the lay organization that adhered and promoted the modern devotion. It was called the Brethren of the Common Life. The name tells us something about its emphases. Simple devotion to Jesus. Love one another. Beyond the church and your own interest in eternal life, you would have been well aware of the great monasteries and convents found all over Europe. While they are far removed from our own experience, they were incredibly important in 1511. You almost certainly lived within a few hours' walk of some kind of religious house, and probably it was even closer than that. The monasteries were, at least in theory, places for laymen to go and find a contemplative walk with God. We need to remember that the monasteries were intended as houses for laity. Certainly every nun was a laywoman, for no female could be ordained to the office of priest, and they could never sing the Mass. In fact, many of the monks were also laymen. Of course, there were also many who did receive ordination and could officiate the Mass, but this was not a requirement for entry into most monastic orders. These houses often dominated the landscape around them and they served as landowner and supplier of necessary goods and even they served as the local government in places. Because of their prominence, they became a powerful part of religious life and this is one of the reasons that Henry VIII dissolved the English monasteries in the 1530s. If you had the funds, you paid others, monks and nuns, to do your religion for you. How much was done depended on your status. The richer you were, the more you could have done for yourself and for others. The ordained monks could spend their days saying masses for you and your loved ones. Nuns could pray. And they did as part of their daily routine. And we could say a whole lot more. Sometimes this wide range of piety and devotion was called opus dei, Latin for the work of God. But in reality, it was the work of man. For in fact, it made God primarily a spectator. He watched as men or women worked in acts of contrition, in daily masses, in pageants and spectacles, on high holy days. And he dispensed some level of forgiveness, remember purgatory, in response to what men did. For all of these people, eternal life was very important, and it was a daily concern. The entire continent was like a busy beehive of religious activity. If the Apostle Paul had toured Europe 500 years ago today, he might have said, to paraphrase the words that he spoke when he was in Athens, Men of Europe, I perceive that you are very religious. From Scandinavia to Gibraltar, From Sicily to the north of Scotland, Europe was thoroughly Roman Catholic. And on this day, 500 years ago, the Reformation was still years away. You see, there's a common misconception about the decades just prior to the Reformation. Sometimes it's said that religion was at its lowest ebb, that the fires had burned low and few people cared. But that's exactly the opposite of the truth. Nearly everyone cared. 
And they were active participants in a whole host of pious behaviors. And this is the climate from which the Reformation grew. Now, how did the Reformers view this piety, all of these acts? In the next decade, as the Reformation began to dawn, Luther and his colleagues began the process of examining this amazing collage of religion. They knew that there were significant problems with the reigning pattern of piety, and they considered both doctrine and practice, probing everything carefully by Scripture, seeking to construct a better way to know God. As they evaluated the familiar practices, they saw that there were two fundamental flaws in most of them. First, these acts that they saw were based on a semi-Pelagian understanding of grace. Now, we have to get this right. The Roman system of salvation did have and does have an important place for grace. In fact, it teaches that salvation begins with grace. But the problem with the Roman system is that it also has a very important place for man's actions. Grace begins the process and enables man to work. But at the end of the day, salvation depended on man's fulfilling the actions that were prescribed by God or by the church. Salvation was not wholly of grace, but was rather the result of synergism. God began the process and man with God's assistance completed the process. And that brought salvation. And the multitudes of pious practices found throughout Europe in 1511 were based on this theological fact, semi-Pelagianism. The second fundamental flaw noted by the Reformers was that much of this activity was based in human invention and not in the revelation of Scripture. Practices had developed over centuries and they became part of the accepted definition of the Christian life. Adherents pursued these acts with unquestioning vigor simply because they were the things that Christians did. There were few who paused to ask whether they should be doing these things or why they did these things. Now, of course, in their beginnings, almost every act flowed from a noble motive. Someone, somewhere, seeking a more robust spiritual life, began the practice, advocated its benefit, and others followed seeking the promised profit. But, even laudable motives to increase piety and devotion can never legitimize a practice. The long-term results of this pattern in late medieval Romanism speak loudly and clearly because they were at the very core of the need for reformation. Even practices rooted in Scripture had been corrupted by semi-Pelagianism and human traditions. Baptism had long ago developed into the application of water on infants. And when water touched the body, grace entered the heart. While the Mass was the most important religious act, strangely, most Christians only received the sacrament at Mass once a year at Easter time. 
Their attendance was as observers, not participants, day by day, week by week. Similarly, it is estimated that most Christians, even the ones who attended Mass most frequently, only heard about ten sermons in an entire year. Preaching was badly neglected. Now, you know, when I reflect on this, it seems to me that it's very strange to think that they really believed that people would benefit from watching a priest mumble a religious service in Latin, in a language they didn't even understand. But they believed that that would bring benefit to people. When you think about it, one understands how magic, or perhaps better put, superstition, and Christianity could be interwoven. And we need to remember that all of these things, the lighting of candles and the pilgrimages and the fasts and the relics and everything else, were popular attempts to find forgiveness from God and eternal life for themselves and their loved ones. Day by day, week by week, year by year, people were ardently pursuing this cycle of religious works, desiring to know that eventually they would be free of the fear of judgment and welcomed into the eternal presence of God. We must not blame the fervent people. They did what they knew, and they did what they were told. But sadly, Christianity had become a religion of human effort based on human traditions. Now, the Reformers reacted against this man-centered form of piety by turning their attention to God. And they asked the question, what does he do? What does God do in order to grant salvation? How does salvation come to sinners? How do believers grow in Christ-likeness? You know, these are central questions. And they are at the very heart of Reformation theology. And in fact, if we think about this historically, I don't mean to say anything bad about Lutherans here, but if we think about this historically, we can say even more so, not only that they're at the heart of Reformation theology, but that they're at the heart of Reformed theology. Luther did well, but his sight was limited. Those who came after him, the second generation of Reformers, built upon his insights and moved the cause of Reformation forward. And we call it Reformed theology. The question was, how does God dispense grace to the elect? And it is a pressing one, isn't it? In the recovery of a doctrine of grace, as opposed to works, it is not enough simply to articulate a doctrine. To do this, to do only this, is effectively to make doctrine merely theoretical. For Reformation to have any power, it must also address practical questions. How does God's grace work in the world? Do the scriptures teach us methods that God employs to bring salvation to the elect? And how is he active in the pious acts of Christians? The result of this burning inquiry was the development of the doctrine that we call the means of grace. Let me move on to try to define for you the means of grace. And we need to define this very carefully. Grace must be understood 
as God's unmerited favor extended to sinners. We cannot define it in any other terms. God's unmerited favor extended to sinners. It originates in God. And it comes only from Him. Grace provides every aspect of salvation to humans. It is completely apart from human works of any kind. The other term, means, is an English rendering of the Latin word media. And it simply indicates a method of communicating or imparting something. For example, we speak of the news media that in theory are the instruments to inform us of events that take place in the world around us. The phrase means of grace simply speaks of the instruments or methods that God determines to employ to bring grace to the elect. An expert on post-Reformation theology, Richard Muller, defines the phrase in that era just this way. It's just a brief quote. The method by which the grace of God is active in the church, instrumental both in the inception of salvation and in the continuance of the work of grace. Similarly, Charles Hodge says this, The phrase is intended to indicate those institutions which God has ordained to be the ordinary channels of grace, that is, of the supernatural influences of the Holy Spirit to the souls of men. So far, so good. But, what are the means of grace? Unless we think carefully, we will not understand exactly what this phrase intends. Frequently, we use it generally to describe any good and useful activity in the church or the Christian life. There is no denying that there are many good and useful activities in the church and the Christian life, and we ought to do them, and we ought to encourage, encourage others to do them. But, a good and useful activity is not necessarily a means of grace. We must not equate these two things. If any of you have corresponded with me by email over the last couple of years, you may have noticed a little Latin phrase at the bottom of my signature. It roughly translates into, he who would teach well must distinguish well. Or if I can paraphrase that, um, he who teaches well must make proper distinctions. What I'm trying to do here is make a proper distinction or to distinguish well between two things. Our Reformed Fathers considered very carefully the question of definition and have given us helpful criteria by which we may distinguish between things that are good and useful and things that should specifically be called the means of grace. Now, let me try to help you think through this. If you examine the Reformed Confessions, including our own Second London Confession of Faith, the 1689 Confession, you will find some technical language used to define and identify the means of grace. In Reformed churches, they are simple and they are few. In the confessions, 
Two criteria are used to mark them out. Now, please listen. If I were giving you an exam after this, I would guarantee you that these two things would be on your exam. If you don't take anything else away from this, I want you to take away these two points. All right? And I have some of my students here with me. Enough said. Actually, I don't think that this comes up anywhere in the curriculum. But just a threat to them, you know. All right, so these are the two things. The first... In order to define what a means of grace is, the first is divine institution. Though we might sharpen this to say dominical institution. I'll explain that in a minute. Divine institution points us to a divine origination and command and addresses the problem of man-centeredness identified by the reformers. Remember we said one of the problems in most of these acts of piety was that they were invented by men. Man-made religious acts have no part in God's distribution of grace. Now, I suggested a sharpening of the phrase from divine institution to dominical institution, meaning institution by the Lord. I sharpen the phrase because there are many things that are of divine institution that are not, under the New Covenant, means of grace. For example, an obvious one is circumcision. Was circumcision divinely instituted? Absolutely. None of us would ever deny that fact. But the requirement of circumcision was limited to a particular covenant, and it is now gone. If we say dominical institution, we clearly indicate that these things belong to the New Covenant and thus come to us through the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you have hymnals in your pews. If you want to take it out and look at the confession in the back, you'll notice how our confession uses this language. For example, uh, and I apologize that I didn't look up the page number for you, but if you look at um, chapter 28, paragraph 1, this language is employed. 28.1 Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. And then notice the next phrase. Appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. See how there the confession uses this significant language intending to teach us that there is something exceptionally important about these things. In order for something to be a means of grace, it must have dominical institution, a command from the Lord Jesus. The second criteria that we find our fathers teaching us, which helps to define further the means of grace, is that there must also be attached a promise of divine blessing. There must also be attached to the dominical institution a promise of divine blessing. By this, our fathers were thinking covenantally, recognizing that God reveals himself by way of covenant, and the acts are related to his covenant. The Lord very explicitly promises that he will bless these acts and we thus are able to trust his promise 
and rely on Him to be faithful to the commitments that He makes. This addresses the matter of semi-Pelagianism. These are the acts of God and the promises made that Christ will be present in them. Listen again to the words of our confession. Chapter 29, paragraph 1. Baptism is an ordinance of, Jesus, of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him and his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins and of giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. By the way, I should have said before that the word ordinance is a very important and technical word. Think of its relationship to the word ordained and you'll understand why not only the Baptists but also the Westminster Divines in places used it. It's to point to the fact that God is the one who commands it. Here in 29.1, baptism is described in terms of wonderful blessing from God. Likewise, in chapter 30, paragraph 1, the Lord's Supper. Notice what it says. The Supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by Him. There's dominical institution. The same night wherein He was betrayed to be observed in His churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance, remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of Himself in His death, confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in Him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to Him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with Him and with each other. These are wonderful words. You see, we have two principles which serve as criteria for determining the identity of the means of grace. They are based upon a fundamentally important and basic assumption, and I want to emphasize this here. I want to spend some time and camp out on this because this is fundamentally important, and this picks up a lot on what Dave said earlier this morning. Here's the, the basis upon which these two principles are identified. Brothers and sisters, Christ is a truly present and active Lord in His church. Christ is a truly present and active Lord in His church. Now, let me just read to you some very familiar texts. Notice what our Lord Jesus says, or what the Scriptures say about Him. Matthew 28, 18-20 All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's a claim of divine sovereignty. On the basis of that claim of divine sovereignty, our Lord Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, picking up the words from Exodus 33 that we read about Moses, Moses says, how will we go unless you are with us? Jesus alludes to that text here. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ institutes. He tells us to go and preach he tells us to go baptize, and he promises when we do those things that he will be with us. Listen to Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. You, you know these texts. Imagine Peter standing there with all of these people around him, and he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the determined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This Jesus, God raised up, to whom to which we are all witnesses. And then a few verses later in Peter's sermon, verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, notice the language of power. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus you crucified. Aren't those powerful words? Ephesians 1, 15-23, when Paul would pray, for spiritual growth and benefit in the church. We notice the end of it. Let's notice the beginning as well. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. We'll hear a sermon that reminds us that prayer is a means of grace. What is Paul's prayer? Maybe this is your text, I don't know. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. These are sample texts. But these truths were crucial in the thinking of the reformers and the Puritans. In fact, I would say this was a principial matter. Christianity is based on the fact that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That He lived a life of holy obedience to God's law. That He offered Himself as a sacrifice on the cross and propitiated God. That He died, that He was buried, that He rose from the dead on the first day of the week. But the essence of our faith does not stop there. They believed, and we must also, that Christ ascended into heaven and now sits at God's right hand, reigning with all of the power in the universe. All authority in heaven and earth, he said, is given to me. He is not an absent Lord, but a very real and present Lord who takes direct interest in his church on earth. He alone extends His kingdom. He alone causes believers to grow like Himself. He alone works in their lives. You see, the Gospel is not just about historical events, though it certainly is. 
but it is also about a presently active Lord Jesus Christ. From the perspective of the Reformers and the Puritans, he was not merely crowned as King of Heaven, watching and waiting to see what would happen with his church. To the contrary, he was a very real and present Lord with a direct interest in the expansion of his kingdom. They believed that Christ was at hand, walking among the candlesticks and personally active among his people. And because of this foundational belief, they asked the question, what has he appointed as the method by which he accomplishes his will? Is it simply that he does things in reaction to events that take place on earth? Or is he proactive, ensuring that all of the elect will, at the proper time, be brought to faith and grow in Christ? Look again at our confession. This time, chapter 14, paragraph 1. The grace of faith. Notice that language. The grace of faith. It introduces, the second word in the English paragraph is grace. Faith is considered to be a grace. Well, confession, how does grace come? How does this grace of faith come? The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. Notice, the grace of faith in both its birth and growth is stated to be the direct work of Christ by His Spirit. Notice the word ordinary. That's another word that's closely related to the word ordained. Our Puritan fathers believe that because God is immutable and because God is a God of order, the process by which grace is given has been established and fixed by His will. And then notice how it comes and how it grows. First, it comes by the ministry of the Word, by the preaching of the Word, by appointed men. This is the preeminent means of grace. And I want you to notice something in the confession that's easy to ignore. It is distinguished from everything else in the paragraph by a semicolon. I have an argument to make based on punctuation. And the argument is that the preaching of the Word is the preeminent means of grace. It is higher than, better than, more important than the others. I'm not trying to diminish them. The preaching of the Word alone is a converting act. Baptism doesn't convert. The Lord's Supper doesn't convert. Preaching converts. Because Christ comes when the Gospel is preached and speaks to the heart of the sinner and they hear the voice of the Savior. He grants them faith and they trust in Him. We saw this at work on this last Sunday in our church. My brother pastor preached an excellent sermon on prayer and fasting. And afterwards, a Marine brought his friend with him to the front and said, Curtis has a question for you. And Curtis was inquiring about his soul. It was a marvelous thing. 
It was an amazing thing. And God did it in our midst. None of the other means of grace give new life. Yes, they increase and they strengthen faith that has previously been brought to birth by the preached word, but they do not impart that life to a dead sinner. Let me commend to you something. You know that uh, the Westminster Assembly published a series of documents. We know about the Confession and the Shorter Catechism and the Larger Catechism. There are some other things that they put together that are very, very helpful. And one of them is called the Directory for Public Worship. In the Directory for Public Worship, they have an excellent section on preaching. And it is an exposition of what our confession says at this point. Our confession and the Westminster Confession are identical in their language. And what the Directory for Public Worship says about preaching is what our confession says about preaching. Now, after it, after the semicolon, we encounter baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, which are all stated to be means, remember that technical word, appointed of God. Means appointed of God. Now, our confession also indicates that there were other means appointed of God. Language that is and ought to be familiar to us by that, by now. And we might ask, what are they? Well, chapter 25 tells us, I'm sorry, chapter 22, paragraph 5, identifies them for us. Solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions which ought to be used in an holy and religious manner. A brother stood before us this morning and called us on May 12th to a day of prayer for the increase of the kingdom of God that is appropriate and right for us to do. We as elders, we are proposing a young man who's here with us to be an elder in our congregation and to take up the lead role as pastor in our church. We have called our church to two days of prayer and fasting in anticipation of that event, which we hope will take place at the end of May. Now, the result is that the means of grace may be listed for us. We can identify them. The ministry of the Word of God, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, and occasional days of fasting and thanksgiving. Now, think about this list in the light of Scripture. Again, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here is Christ's claim of universal sovereignty, divine institution of both preaching and baptism, and the promise of the Lord's presence as the church fulfills this command. Romans 10, 14 through 17. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. In this context, this isn't a reference to written scripture, but rather to the exalted Lord who speaks to his people in faithful preaching. 
to quote from a Reformed confession, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Christ is present when his word is faithfully preached and he speaks, imparting faith to his hearers. John 14, verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, this is tempered by words spoken in 1 John chapter 5. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence. Notice that language. The confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, according to his will, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. When we pray, who hears? Who will do these things? Is prayer routine? Is it an exercise of religious words? No, it calls upon the Lord Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven, to accomplish his will, the very things that he has revealed in Scripture. Prayer is not a time for us to indulge our lusts, but rather to bow before him and ask that he would bless the things that he himself has appointed. Again, these are only samples. And they will be explained to us in detail by our other brothers who have the rest of these topics in the next two days. Now, let me, let me make some further comments. Some cautions is the heading that I have in my notes. We must be careful. There are a couple of cautions we need to state. Please listen very carefully. The doctrine of the means of grace is not intended to teach that these are the only activities that may and even should be present in the church. Let me repeat that. The doctrine of the means of grace is not intended to teach that these are the only activities that may and even should be present in the church. There is a wide variety of activities our churches may and perhaps ought to do. Every useful writer on the doctrine of the means of grace makes this very important point. The doctrine is simply formulated. Remember the, the little comment I made about making good distinctions before. The doctrine is simply formulated to say that these are the things we must do. And they are the things upon which we may expect God's blessing. While we ask him to bless all of our acts, in these cases we may boldly come to him and implore him to be faithful to his promises. There are many positive and useful things that we do which should not be considered means of grace. Let me mention some. Now before I read through this list, I want to say something very important. Okay? And all of you will be my witnesses that I've said this if anybody comes after me after this meeting. Okay? I want all of you to be my witnesses. Inclusion of any item in this list does not in any way imply my opposition to this thing. Okay? 
Everybody hear that? I'm not saying that necessarily that any of these things are bad. I'm not saying we shouldn't do them. I'm trying to distinguish between the means of grace and other things, okay? So if I pick on, if I, no, I'm not going to pick on. If I mention your favorite thing, please don't take offense. It doesn't mean that I'm opposed to it. In fact, I'm going to say some things that I really believe in. You'll know as soon as I say them. My whole life is wrapped up in some of the things I'll say, okay? So I'm picking on myself as much as anybody else, but I'm trying to make a good distinction and help you to do so. So please, don't be bothered if what you like is on my list. Basically, I'll say this. If it's not in the confession, it's on my list. Okay? So I'll give you that warning ahead of time. But here's a list. It could be made longer. Here it is. Remember. Okay. You all got it. Okay. I hope you got it. Okay, here we go. If I mention your favorite thing, it's not, a call, it's not to call the legitimacy of that thing into question. It's simply to help you think clearly about this point. These things are not means of grace. Associations of churches. Ministerial training institutions. Youth groups. Small groups. Christian schools. Homeschools, counseling and counseling centers, Sunday schools, retreats, fellowship meals, discipleship meetings, financial giving, spiritual gifts, blogging and reading blogs, and the list could go on. There's a lot of good things in that list. I'm not opposed to any of them. I hope I don't have to keep saying that. But I'm trying to make good distinctions here. Distinctions that we find in our confession. Distinctions that we find in our history. Many of these things, maybe all of these things, are very useful and they may and even should be done. But they're not the same as preaching, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, and occasional days of fasting and thanksgiving. The second caution we need to make is that we reject... With all of our being. I don't know how more strongly to, to state that. We reject with all of our being the Roman Catholic notion that states that anything works in and by itself. There are two things that are necessary for blessings to come from the means of grace. Number one, the present activity of Christ through his spirit. And number two, the act of faith. In the recipient. No religious activity brings grace automatically. It's very interesting that the Romanist response to the Reformation, which was published in the canons of the Council of Trent, condemns anyone who denies the Roman position that the sacraments work in and by themselves when properly administered. You probably have heard that Latin phrase, ex opere operato, right? Listen to this statement from, this is the seventh session, canon eight, from the councils of Trent. They're condemning us in these words. If anyone saith that by the said sacraments of the new law, grace is not conferred through the act performed, but that faith alone in the divine promise suffices for the obtaining of grace, let him be anathema. You know what? I'm willing to stand up and raise my hand and say, pronounce that anathema on me. Because I reject that Roman doctrine. Faith must be present in the use of the means of grace. We need to say that with all of our strength. 
They said this because they the, the Roman Catholics said this because they understood that the Reformed churches vehemently denied this very point, ex opere operato. And we must always do so. In a related matter, when all of the Reformed writers emphasize the importance of active faith when participating in the means of grace, you can at times sense their discomfort with the, present, the practice of infant baptism in the formulation. I recently read Charles Hodge on this. He was obviously uncomfortable with the implications of the doctrine of the means of grace for pedo-baptism. The same thing is true when you read William Cunningham or James Bannerman. They have the same kind of difficulties in expressing themselves. The means of grace fit perfectly within a credo-baptist, a believer's baptist framework. Let me, let me read you a quote from uh, George Swinnock. You, many of you probably have his volumes on your shelf. The banner published them oh, 15 years ago or so. Volume 1, page 103, from The Christian Man's Calling. He says, Reader, remember thine errand at ordinances is to get grace. That's the point I've been making. Thine errand at ordinances is to get grace. Thou hast God's promise to them and his power and faithfulness both engaged for its performance. Notice, his power and his faithfulness engaged for the performance. And it is thy fault and folly if thou goest hungry from a full table and empty from a free and large treasure. Now, the doctrine of the means of grace also calls us to examine our other acts. Is it possible that we fall into the trap of our own traditions and introduce and expect God to use methods of our own invention. Let me give you an example. When I was a young man, I was brought to faith in Christ in 1970. I was 15 years old. When I was a young man, altar calls were considered to be a test of orthodoxy in many churches. If a preacher didn't give an altar call, at the end, imagine that we close this and I ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And How many of you are willing to accept the means of grace and call you forward and have a revival? If, we, if, you, if a preacher didn't give an altar call, it was said that he wasn't really interested in seeing people brought to Christ. But as many of us grew in the Reformed faith, as we read books about what was called the invitation system, written by men like Ian Murray and Errol Hulse, we realize that this action, though laudable in its intention, how, how can you be opposed to something that is seeking to bring people to Christ? But we recognize that it was wrong. It was a wrong method. And so it had no basis in Scripture, and it ought to be rejected. Now, without anything in mind, I ask the question for you to consider, do we have anything else like this that we need to re reject? I don't have anything specific in my mind, I just ask you to consider that question. Let me come to a conclusion. There is a whole lot more that I would like to say. We could work our way through the doctrine in the confession. Actually, the confession has a whole lot to say about this. If you have this edition, we could work our way through the doctrine in the Baptist Catechism. By the way, on the IRBS table over there, there's a stack of Baptist Catechisms that are free for the taking. Don't take anything else on the table, please. But if, there, if that stack is still there, feel free to take those. Those are, those are to be given away. We could work our way through the Baptist Catechism. We could notice the, the basis of the doctrine of the means of grace in the doctrine of God. 
And we can notice how it's formulated with the centrality of Christ. When I originally thought about putting this presentation together, and I have preached this probably about 300 times in the last year, to myself, laying in bed at night, thinking through, what will I say? I thought about how the five solas of the Reformation have a direct relationship to this doctrine. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Solo Christo, Soli Deo Gloria. Think through those five solas and how they relate to the doctrine of the means of grace. We could speak about the relationship between the means of grace and the regulative principle of worship. I listened to, and this morning I woke up very early and I put it on my iPod, I was listening again to a really excellent sermon, one of the best I've ever heard on the regulative principle of worship by Derek Thomas. It was done at the 2007 Westminster Conference that RTS sponsors. You can get it on iTunes University as a free download. I think it's called um, Overly Regulated, question mark, the Westminster Doctrine of the Regular Principle of Worship. Derek Thomas, in that lecture, calls proper worship. Now remember, he's talking about the, the regular principle of worship. But he calls proper worship means of grace worship. That's his alternative. Those who have a high view of the regular principle of worship will understand the centrality importance of the means of grace. We don't have time to go down that road. Listen to Derek Thomas. He does it far better than I could. He's exactly right. You see, time will not permit any more than a mention of these things. What I want to do in conclusion is to give you a couple of quotations from one of our greatest fathers. In my, my opinion, the greatest of our English-speaking theologians, and that's John Owen. Three quotes from Owen. Listen to what he says. Now, brothers and sisters, John Owen has been immensely influential in our identity. There may be no Puritan who's more important for who we are and what our confession teaches than John Owen. Listen to what he says. I quote, Such is the nature of the unalterable decree of God in this matter, that no person living can ever attain the end of glory and happiness without the means of grace and holiness. The same eternal purpose respects both. Second quote from Owen, commenting on baptism and the supper of the Lord. Basically, what he does here is lay out our two criteria, our two principles for identifying the means of grace. Listen to them. Number one, as for baptism in the Lord's Supper, number one, that we submit our souls and consciences unto the authority of Christ in these institutions. Unless this be the foundation we build upon, the whole service will be lost unto us. And the second point, that we rest on the veracity of Christ for the working of the grace and accomplishment of the mercy represented in them and sacramentally exhibited by them. For they will not profit them by whom the promises of Christ, there it is, virtually contained in them and accompanying of them are not mixed with faith. And we cannot believe the promise unless we submit to the authority of Christ in the appointment of that whereunto it is annexed. 
When we observe the Lord's Supper, we do it because Christ appointed it. And when we're convinced that Christ has appointed it, we may, by faith, receive the blessing attending it. Third quote from Owen. See, those are our two principles, divine institution and a promise of divine blessing. The third and final quote from Owen. The rule of God's continuance with any people or church. Remember what I said was the foundation upon which everything was built? The presence of Christ in the church? You know what Owen is saying? The rule of God's continuance with any people or church as to the outward dispensation of his providence and the means of grace is that expressed in 2 Chronicles 15.2. The Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if ye forsake him, he will forsake you. And then Owen comments, he judicially forsakes them by whom he is willfully forsaken. Brothers, let's take heed. May the Lord be with us as we pursue him in the ways that he has sovereignly appointed. Preaching his holy word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, Occasional days of fasting and thanksgiving. These are the means of grace. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are astounded at your kindness and mercy, your grace extended to us in Jesus Christ. Forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for taking into our own hands what you have promised to do. Forgive us for failing to believe that you are with us and that you will accomplish your will. Father, sometimes you might call us to be Jeremiah's and not see what we desire, but make us faithful and be faithful to your promise and stay with us. And may we see your glory extended throughout the world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.